Amen, Lord. We're once again just thankful for your, your goodness to us, for your grace to us, Lord. We thank you that uh, all the blessings of salvation are secured for us in Christ, Lord. Uh, that it's not dependent on us, that you don't just take us through different stages of redemption, Lord, but that it's all, it's all been sealed in Christ. And that because of that, we have this blessed assurance that you will see us through to the end. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for your sovereignty in it. Lord, help us to, uh, to, to see you for who you are, Lord. Help us to see the truth in your word and the beauty of the gospel. Give us eyes to see that. Give us ears to hear it. And give us a spirit that understands it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Romans 11, and we're actually going to go through the end of the chapter this morning, and so we'll start in 15 and go all the way to 36. Uh, I was telling, I was telling um, the worship team this morning, I remember reading through, uh, we, we read through the, the entire book of Romans when we decided we were going to preach through Romans next year, and it was before we, uh, before we we're setting the preaching schedule and all that and cutting the text and everything and deciding what the, what the sermon text would be. Uh, we just read through the straight book and I, uh, straight through the book. And I remember when we got, uh, when we got through Romans 11, just thinking like, man, I'm not sure about Romans 11. Like there's, <laughs> there's some things in there that I'm not sure what to do with. Uh, and in God's sovereignty, here I am preaching the, the second half of the chapter to you this morning, but I'm excited. It's going to be good. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, that's been that's been rewarding to me. Let me read read our text this morning here. Again, we'll start in fifteen and go through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now if some of the branches were broken off and and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant. But beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the the deliverer or the redeemer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob 
and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too now have disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, For nearly... A thousand years, uh, Aristotle's view of, of, a, of a stationary earth at the center of a revolving universe dominated natural philosophy. This idea that the, the entire uh, universe revolves around the earth, it even became, became ingrained in, in Christian theology, making it a doctrine of religion really as much of, as, a, as a natural philosophy. Uh, but in 1515, there was a Polish priest named Nicholas Copernicus, who proposed this idea that the earth was just a regular planet, right? Just like uh, uh, Venus or, or Saturn or Pluto, just, just another planet, and that all the planets, they didn't revolve around the earth, they all revolved around the sun, the earth included. This idea, it wasn't even published until 1543 out of fear of what might happen, and, and rightfully so, some of the very early uh, supporters of this position uh, faced really harsh opposition and even even torture and brutal deaths because of how this position was viewed to be in violation, not of science, but of Christianity. But understand that, that underneath all of this resistance, it was this dominant priority of the importance of self. And the reason that it took so long for humanity to, to see and discover that the universe did not revolve around them was that it lacked the point of view that it needed to be able to see it. It lacked the point of view that was able to see the earth not as the center of the universe, but as just another part of it. And, and as such, they were not able to see what the true center of it was, not the earth, but the sun. It wasn't for over a hundred years when the evidence, it was finally undeniable that this position, it was formally accepted on a large scale. After the dust had settled on this, one man commented, he said, of all discoveries and opinions, none may have exerted a greater effect on the human spirit than the doctrine of Copernicus. When the world was asked to waive the tremendous privilege of being at the center of the universe. This predicament with only being able to see the world with ourselves at the center, it's exactly the predicament that the text is going to present us with this morning as well. And just like the world needed to be cured from seeing itself as the center of the universe, all the way back in the 1500s and beyond, so do God's people in the first century church now, and dare I say still today, need continually cured from seeing the world as revolving around us. And this is exactly what Paul wants to address this morning. He's going to speak specifically to these these early Gentile Christians that we've been talking about, the ones who they've obtained this righteousness that Israel has pursued but they've now fallen into the exact same pride that Israel has. 
And in addressing this, Paul intends to tear down, tear down that, that same pride in our hearts as well, the pride that sees ourselves at the center of the universe. He's going to do this by showing us one kind of overarching idea that hangs over all the movements in this text, because there's a lot. One idea, which is that God saves us because of what he is like, not because of what we are like. Again, this is going to be our, our kind of main idea. God saves us because of what he is like, not because of what we are like. That's what we'll see in our text this morning. First, through the use of this, this olive tree metaphor in the beginning here. Pick up with me in verse 17. He says, now if some of the branches were broken off, talking about the, the unbelieving Jews here, and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Now again, the context of what's happened here is that the, the Jews, uh, they, they have not obtained salvation because they pursued it by works and their pride. They, they've wrongly assumed that this righteousness they need, it comes through their own ability to keep the law. And as such, they've rejected the message of the gospel. They've rejected the Messiah himself. And now it's actually the Gentiles who have trusted in, in the gospel, in Christ, who have been grafted in by faith. But now it appears that these Gentiles who have been grafted in by faith, they've begun looking around at all the Jews who have been cut off, and they've begun to feel good about themselves, that they've inherited God's promises, and now they have something that the Jews don't. It was Lewis in his famous book, Mere Christianity, who said, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. And this is exactly what's happened to these Gentile Christians, and it's specifically what, what Paul begins to address through the use of this metaphor with the olive tree. There's two things specifically I think that he wants us to see about the nature of this tree and, and the nature of themselves on the tree that should keep them from pride by, again, directing their eyes upwards towards God instead of downward on themselves and other people. The first thing that Paul says is that the, the branches on this tree, they can't sustain themselves. They're sustained by the root. Now, the identity of this root, it is, it, it's one of several places in this passage that uh, there's a lot of conversation around, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate. Um, some will take this to be uh, just the, the patriarchs, so like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, to whom the covenant was made. I think, I think that position's fair theologically, uh, as the, the connection it would be to the covenant made with them, and also the fact that they were, they were, they were believers. They trusted in that covenant. They trusted in the Messiah. Um, some will take it to be the first Jewish believers, which uh, I think is a little more difficult just because it, it seems to be put too much uh, emphasis on, on national Israel. There's too much priority there on national Israel specifically. Uh, but the position I would put forward and how to understand this is that the root of the tree that the Gentiles have been grafted into, it's Christ. <laughs> it's the Messiah himself. You'll remember it, one of the images of the Messiah back in, in Isaiah 11 is that he will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's the language. And, and there's two things about this shoot back in Isaiah 11 that I think align with exactly what Paul's doing here. Uh, one, it says that a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's the same exact language that's being used in this metaphor here in Romans 11 uh, about, the, about these fruit-bearing branches that have, that have come in. Uh, second, it talks about this root 
uh, it says that this root, it's going to stand as a banner for all the nations. Again, it's exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 11 with the, the Gentiles. They, they're the ones who have come in. These Gentiles, they're, they're the engrafted branches here. And then I think if we just kind of zoom out and we see a uh, bigger picture context of, of Isaiah really 9 to 12, it becomes even more convincing because in those chapters, really the main idea is that God, he's preserving a, a remnant both of Jewish uh, a, a Jewish remnant and a Gentile remnant that one day he's going to bring together and form this whole new created order and it's all going to come through the work of his Messiah, the root, the stump. Paul even quotes a verse out of Isaiah 11 later in Romans 15 using it to refer to Christ and so I, I, that seems to be the most consistent way to read it here in Romans 11 as well. But again, the, the, the larger point of all of this is to simply provide the Gentile believers with the right perspective about their salvation. That they're not at the center of it. Rather, they're, they're branches on a root. And that the root is at the center of it. And that it's the root that sustains the tree, not the branches themselves. God saves us because of what he is like, not because of what we are like. And while we're constantly prone to pride and arrogance, he continually sustains our salvation. This should encourage us the same way it should encourage these early believers not to individualize our salvation and think about it as if it were only or even primarily about us. It's not. And while we, we should be thankful to God for our own story and, and even the unique ways that he's drawn us to himself and, and is using us today, we should never fail to recognize that it's all ultimately about him every step of the way. Amen? It's all meant to magnify Christ and not us. I think perhaps we could say that, that no discovery in Christianity can exert a greater effect on the human spirit than when we forfeit the notion that it all revolves around our individual selves. That we're just a part of a whole tree that is rooted in Jesus. The second thing that Paul teaches about the nature of this olive tree is that being grafted in and grafted out, it, it all hinges upon belief and unbelief. In verse 20, he, he acknowledges that some of the Jews, they've been cut off of the tree so that the Gentiles could be grafted in, but so that they would not be arrogant about this, he specifies how that happens and why it happens. He says, they were broken off by unbelief, but you stand by faith. And so in much the same way that God, he never chose Israel because of anything special about them and in much the same way that Israel they did not inherit any of the blessings of the promise by virtue of their their Jewishness or anything that they did their works of the law anything special about them neither have the Gentile nations now come in because of anything inherently virtuous about them either the way onto the tree is by faith and the way off of the tree is by by unfaith by disbelief and, and again what purpose does Paul have in explaining this what's well, what he says right after that don't be arrogant. <laughs> Don't be prideful about your salvation. But how does the recognition that we're grafted in only by faith guard us from pride? Well, I think it's by remembering the message that we have faith in. This gospel message that we proclaim that, that, that salvation comes by faith, inherent in that very message is the fact that there's there's absolutely nothing in man that warrants salvation from a holy and just God. So many of our issues, they come out of just our great inability to just remember the gospel. 
It was Luther who said, I preach justification by faith to my congregation every single week because every single week they forget it. (laughs) Well, here it is again for you too because inherent to that gospel message that we proclaim that salvation comes by faith, understand inherent to that very message is the fact that there is something very, very, very wrong with me. Gathering around the gospel every week, it's, it's sort of like showing up to your first uh, AA meeting, right? Uh, you, you, you don't even have to say anything yet, but we all know you got a problem. It's just a matter of, of what specifically and how bad it's gotten and uh, like me telling you what my name is, right? But, but like if you're coming to AA, we all know that you have an issue. And Paul's point here is that that's exactly what being a branch on this tree is like. You're only on the tree because you had faith in Christ. And the reason you got on that way is because you've got a problem. And if we could just go ahead, I think, right now and just, and just make the point that that's more like what our churches should be. Because to come to church and gather every single week around the message that a perfect man once died for my sin means I have a problem. It's just a matter of me being honest about what it is and telling you how bad it is and telling you what my name is. But the problem's there. And Paul's whole point here, if we're, if, we're, if we're getting all of this, is please somebody tell me where there's any room for arrogance in that message. Where is there any room for, for, for boasting or for pride over another brother? I don't, I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. Everyone everybody is leveled at the foot of the cross. And if you don't really get that here in Romans, you're not paying attention. As Lewis said, if you're, if you're looking around, you won't see that. If you're looking down on people, you can't see that, and you will inevitably, inevitably fall into pride in comparison about how you stack up against somebody. And it's only when we, we look at the source of everything that we have that we see that there's no room for any of that. There's a, there's a little devotional um, that I actually really like. It's called A Gospel Primer. Uh, it's by a guy named Milton Vincent. And one of the entries in there, it's titled, Exposed by the Cross. And it says this. It says, The cross also exposes me before the eyes of other people informing them of the depth of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross and am seen by others under the light of that cross, I'm left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgatha's hill. And my self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. The cross makes plain that God saves us because of what he's like, not because of what we are like. Because it exposes both of us for what we truly are. We're completely wicked and sinful, but God is faithful and he's good. We're completely incapable, but God makes a way. We deserve to hang from Golgotha's hill. But God grafts us into the rich root of Christ. 
once again, the cross. It's what provides us with the perspective that we need to see ourselves out of the center of the universe. As opposed to boasting in ourselves and making it about us, our, our gospel confession, it's really twofold. We preach Christ crucified. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. And, and the reason that we do that is because of the trustworthy and true statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's 1 Timothy 1. And, and the reason God chose it to do, this, to, to do it this way, this is 1 Corinthians 1 again, is so that no one can boast in his presence. Uh, Luther, Luther would say it this way. He would say, the cross alone is my theology. And that's what we need to see here. And if that's true, <laughs> if that's true, then the cross is what we boast in. We don't, we don't grow prideful in ourselves. We boast in the cross and in Christ alone as our salvation. And so Paul says that they're, they're these wild branches. They've been engrafted now into a cultivating olive tree by their faith, the root of which is Christ. But now he, he begins to explain that God's reason for bringing them in is to bring about the redemption of the Jews. And it's another dramatic reversal in this great cosmic pl- plan of redemption that God, he, he chooses Israel to be his people, but then he turns them over to ignorance and sin to make all other peoples part of his people. But then he's now going to use this new people to turn the Jews back to himself so that they can once again be a part of his people. Are you following that? While we constantly look inward and we focus on ourselves, God is He's constantly pouring his love and his goodness out on other people. And, and once again, what is the point of all this? Well, it's don't boast. Don't be proud. Your, your salvation is not all about you. But if it's not about you, then, then who is it about? Well, I think we want to say here that it's first about God and the keeping of his word to bring salvation to all people. Let's read what Paul says. Uh, look with me in verse, uh, verse 25 there. He says, so that you will not be conceited. Again, that's the whole purpose of what he's, what he's explaining. I don't want you to be ignorant or unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The, the tension, really, in everything that Paul um, is talking about, really in Romans 9, back in Romans 9 all the way through 11 here, with this, this rejection of national Israel, it, it's how God is going to remain faithful to his word if he promised to save the Jews. And, and maybe, maybe nowhere in that conversation is this more controversial than here in verse 26 when he says, all Israel will be saved. And, and the question around this verse is really, who is he referring to here, right? Is he referring to, to national Israel, ethnic Israel, or, or spiritual Israel, uh, which would just mean really the church? This is the mystery. It's how, how God's working through these two people groups coincide with one another, and much of how you answer that is going to depend on how you define the groups and who Paul is talking about here in this verse. Um, this conversation, it gets really, really technical really quickly. Um, but if we could just talk about this for a moment, because it's, it is very important to understand what's happening and, and kind of how it all fits into the purposes of God in salvation. Um, I'll just put my cards on the table up front here, okay? 
what I'm going to argue for is that when Paul says all Israel will be saved in verse 26, that that's referring to spiritual Israel, not ethnic Israel. Let me give you two reasons why. First, some people, they're going to point to, to kind of the immediate context around that statement specifically and how he seems to be talking primarily about national Israel. And they're going to say that it, it doesn't make any sense for him to uh, talk about national Israel in one verse and then suddenly just change his referent in the next verse, but still using the same term. Does this make sense? So when he says a partial hardening has come to Israel, well, that's clearly referring to national Israel, which I agree. I don't have any disagreement with that. But then they'll say if that's true, it doesn't make any sense that he would use the same exact word one sentence later, but mean something completely different by it. And to this, I would point out first that I think Paul has actually already done that. Uh, if we look back in verse 9-6, when he says, not all Israel is Israel, there he uses the exact same word one right after another, but clearly talking about two different groups. And I think the same thing is true here in chapter 11, and I actually think the immediate context actually supports that as well. If we read the verse, it would seem to suggest that there's, there's actually something about the inclusion of the Gentiles, about the Gentiles coming in, that leads to, or is the way in which, all Israel will be saved, in verse 26. It says, the full number of Gentiles will come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so the Gentiles are coming in, it, it, it seems to be a part of the way in which this group that he calls all Israel, whoever that is, is going to be saved. And if the Gentiles are included in that group, well then it must be, it must be the mixed community of Jew and Gentile, the church. A second feature that, that supports uh, basically the same thing we just said is the language that Paul uses of, of in this way, that specific phrase. If he was just referring to different stages, right, of, of uh, like cosmic scale Jewish uh, rejection and then Gentile inclusion, and then now if he was arguing for this later time or, or sometime in which all the Jews specifically now are going to come back in, it would make much more sense for Paul to use more of a temporal marker or say something like, and at that time, all Israel will be saved. That would make more sense if it were national Israel. If it were national Israel in view, it would, be, it would be more of the idea of the time at which all Israel will be saved and not the way in which all Israel will be saved, which is how it actually reads. There's, of course, much, much, much more that can be, that can be said about this, but these are, I think, the two strongest reasons I find to read it as referring to, to spiritual Israel to the church, but I do also think there's, there's uh, maybe a more kind of biblical theological reason to read it this way as well, which is that this is much more consistent with the overarching plan of God in salvation to, to make a people out of all tribes and all tongues and all nations. If I were to, to summarize this idea and, and bring it all together and show how it's all about God, I think the third reason we give for understanding it is spiritual Israel is that it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It's in this way that the, the grafting in of the Gentile, it's all about God, right? The, the objection to the present state of Jew and Gentile is that it's actually a violation of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. But if you understand the promise rightly, you'll, you'll see that that could not be further from the truth. This reality that we're talking about, the, the Gentiles coming in, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. If you've if you've been in church long enough, you'll, you'll all remember the song, right? Father Abraham had many sons, right? We all know the song. 
But here's the thing. Before he can be the father of, of many, he first has to be the father of one. The many come through the one. And so there, there's the one nation, which is Israel, but there's the many nations that come through the one. Just like there's the one seed, but the many seeds that come through him. And this, this dynamic between the one and the many, it's foundational to the promise, and, and it's really crucial to understanding what we're talking about, what the promise is about. Now keep this in mind, keep that idea in mind as we just, just follow Paul's logic here in Romans 11. He says, all Israel will be saved, and then he says, as it is written, and he quotes out of Isaiah. And if we look at Isaiah 59, we see it's about, it's about this Redeemer figure who's going to take away the sins of Jacob. Now, what's significant about this Redeemer is it is the same servant of the Lord back in Isaiah 42 and in Isaiah 49, who is also referred to as Israel. And the reason that he's referred to as Israel is because he fulfills not necessarily the, the identity of Israel, but the function that Israel was intended to serve. What is that function? It's bringing redemption to the nations. He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant because he's the one through whom the many are blessed and brought in. You follow that? The Redeemer is the one who fulfills the function of the nation of Israel and that he, he brings hope and salvation not just to, to a singular nation, to Israel, but to all the nations. Through him, through this Redeemer, this Messiah, the singular seed, will come the many. And this is the reality that's unfolding now that Christ has come. And it's the way in which I think Paul understands all Israel to be saved. It's by virtue of being in Christ, in the Redeemer, by faith in him. He is the root that the branches are grafted into. But even though this is primarily about God and the keeping of his promise, and even though that is not... Uh, limited to national Israel, but has a, a much wider scope of people in mind, it's certainly not excluding national Israel as well. God is still going to work to save Jews through the Gentiles now, and in this way, their salvation, it's not just about them, it's also about their neighbor. Pick up with me in verse 30. Paul says, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also now may have mercy. This mercy that God has provided the Gentiles, again, through the disobedience of the Jews, he's now using to make the Jews jealous, and as a result will bring them back to himself as well. What, what I think is... <laughs> just amazing about this, honestly, is that when you, when you just, you zoom all the way out, you, you see that God, he's always working through a specific people for the good of another people, right? He, he, he chose the Jews ultimately to bring salvation to the nations. That w that's what we just talked about. And now that that's happened, he's going to use all those nations to bring back the Jews. I rightly understood, I think, our, our salvation, it really always has this sort of sort of outward orientation to it. It's, it's concerned with, and even at some level, I think, exists for the good of other people. And this is true both corporately, we can think now of ourselves as a church, and even, even individually. It's not all about us. In the same way that good businesses, they recognize that they don't, they don't just exist for their own good, but they start by asking the question, well, how can we best serve our customers, other people, 
God's people should also live lives that are oriented not primarily towards the good and the prosperity of self, but they should have the utmost concern with the good of the person next to them. And this, once again, it guards us from pride and conceit, as is Paul's concern for these Christians, because it, it shows us that even, even our greatest gifts, right, even, even the best things the Lord gives us, it's not something to be stored up for our own admiration, but something to be dispensed out and given to other people. I think Jesus himself spoke about this in, in the parable of the talents. You all remember that, where he, he describes the two types of servants, right? The, the, the faithful ones who take what the master's given to them and they go out and they multiply it, contrasted with the, the wicked and the lazy one who just keeps what he has for himself and doesn't multiply what he's been given. But it also humbles us by showing us that God is working to save every type of sinner unto himself. Again, if we just zoom way out here and we, and we think about the nature of the delineation that Paul has made between Jew and Gentile at the beginning of Romans, all he's doing there is describing the type of sinners they are. That's it. In Romans 1 and into Romans 2, it's the nations apart from God, apart from the law. They're described as being in, in just complete debauchery and wit, wickedness. Again, apart from the restraint of the law on them and involved in just all types of, of heinous sin. But then Romans 2 and 3 comes along and it says, even though the, the Jews, they do have that law, they're no better, right? They, their problem is not that they're involved in these uh, unnatural sexual relations or can be accused of hating God. Their problem is they actually think they're pretty good. The righteousness of the Gentiles, they're, they're completely ignorant of. The Jews actually think they're doing pretty good in attaining it. And Romans 2 is clear that they, they look down on these Romans 1 sinners in pride and judgment, but only to their own condemnation. But now what's happened? God brings in those, those wicked, godless Gentiles to make the self-righteous Jews jealous by giving them the righteousness they pursued, yet they're the ones who are now prideful over the Jews. That's what's happening. They're the ones who see the sin of the Jews, their ignorance, their self-righteousness, their belief that they're better and how wrong that is. They're trusting in themselves and they, they become prideful over them now. And friends, this is how sin works, is it not? This is what mankind is like. In pride, sin always, always looks at other types of sinners and sees the self as somehow better than. And the great irony is that in judging the self-righteous, hypocritical Jews who, who don't understand the gospel, they don't get it, they've become self-righteous hypocrites themselves now. And so much of what Paul is showing here is that not only has God drawn to himself the male in Romans 2, who it says is having shameful acts with other males, he's also drawing the self-righteous hypocrite to himself as well. And, 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 and here's the thing, he's going to do it through you. This is what God is like. <laughs> he's always using his people to draw all types of sinners to himself. And so don't be conceited about it. Don't be prideful. Don't, don't make your salvation all about you. It's not. That unbeliever over there that you, you may see completely lost in his self-righteousness and his arrogance, your salvation is not just for you. It's also for him. 
He needs the grace and the mercy of God just like you did, and God intends to give it to him. Again, this, this wide lens view of salvation that takes ourselves out of the center of it and it puts God and our neighbor there, it, it, it not only should push you away from pride over another person, but it should actually encourage you to engage them and, and bring the gospel to them because you're the means by which God draws sinners to himself. And I think we, we all the time can, can go to texts like this, like Romans 11 and where we've been the last couple months, honestly, that uh, demand a lot of mental energy and a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion, and it's hard to understand, and there's, there's debate that we get all caught up in. And sometimes I think we just get so ingrained in that that we have this feeling of like, well, what, at the end of the day, like, what am I, what am I supposed to do with this? And it's not, it's not that the Bible doesn't give us that. I think it's just that we honestly get caught so high up in the, in the high and loft, lofty thought life that we, that we miss the plain and simple application of it sometimes that the text gives us, one of which is just preach the gospel. You're the means by which God draws people to him and so so resist the temptation to become too proud or too good to engage sinners no matter what type of sinners they are with the truth of the gospel that they desperately need this leads us right into the last thing that we're going to consider this morning which is the abundant mercy of God to draw sinners to himself what are we like? Well, we're, we're, we're abundantly sinful and we're prideful. But what is God like? He's abundantly, abundantly merciful to all people. I read this earlier, but let me read it again, starting in verse 30. Notice again the parallels and how he, he worked in the Jews before and how he will work in the Gentiles now. He says, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also now may receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. This demonstration of God's mercy on all people is really what this entire section in Romans 9 through 11 is all about. And honestly, honestly what the entire book of Romans is all about. It, it involves all of humanity and it's so that God's mercy would be demonstrated on all people. And I guess I just want to ask, is this how you see God in these texts? As being before, before anything else, right? Incredibly merciful. If we back up a few weeks, we've talked about God's sovereign election, his hardening of sinners and, and what that means and how to think about it, his display of his glory on objects of mercy and on objects of wrath and the temptation uh, as we've tried to acknowledge the entire time is to get just caught up in all the kind of systematic and philosophical and honestly just like human curiosity questions that those things spark um, that, that can kind of dominate these passages of scripture. And, and the danger is that in the end of all of that, that maybe we begin to see God uh, not as good, but maybe as evil even. Or maybe we begin to see him as rejecting his people and rejecting his promised word and not upholding the very promise that, that he always intended to keep. Maybe we let these hard things we read let us live in accusation against God 
and not rejoice in the depth of his wisdom and knowledge like Paul does here at the end of chapter 11. I, I don't know. I don't know what, what it might be, but what I can tell you is that none of those things are what the text would encourage you towards. And it's possible that we may be staring at the words of the Bible, but, but just completely missing what it's all about, what it is we're supposed to take away from it. Uh, I, went, I went to um, my first rodeo the other night, last weekend. Uh, my future, <laughs> my future sister-in-law was riding her horse in it, and so my whole family went up to watch, and, uh, and I was just kind of feeling it out, you know, I didn't really know, I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, I had a lot of fun watching her ride her horse, which, uh, only lasted for 14.02 seconds, but, but it was fun. Uh, but here's the thing, I was there for, for over two and a half hours, right, uh, watched the entire thing, and saw everything that happened, and the entire time, you know, people are, are clapping and cheering and, and, uh, and, and screaming, just, just soaking up the glory of the rodeo show. And, uh, and for the life of me, I just could not figure out what they were all excited about. <laughs> maybe I'm just not a rodeo guy, okay, maybe. Uh, if you know me, you're probably not shocked by that. Uh, in my defense, the bull riders really did not do well, okay, they didn't do well, far more under like three seconds than over, uh, so that was disappointing, but like I'm looking around and people are just, they're just eating this whole thing up, and I'm just not, I'm just not getting it, and I, I understand there's subjectivity to it, uh, and, and if you're a rodeo person, the problem's all me, okay, I'll, I'll confess that, like it's all my problem, I can't, I don't get it, but part of the problem I confess is I just don't have the appreciation for all of the details that go into it, right? Like, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know animals well. I don't know what it takes to train an animal, to care for an animal. Uh, I don't understand all the ins and outs of riding a bull or even riding a horse. And, and because I don't understand the details of the performance that's happening, I can't really appreciate or even, even see the significance of what I'm watching, I'm seeing the whole thing. I saw everything that happened, but I'm missing it. But here's the other thing that's maybe just as important, honestly, is that the rest of the people around me who all understood all the details and knew everything that was going on, they didn't just sit around and like debate the technique and kind of point out the technicalities of everything. They looked at the grand performance of everything that was going on and they cheered. They clapped. They praised it. And if we can just come back to the text, which is objective, my question would just be this. Are you seeing the glory of what's in front of you? We've been in this tough section of the Bible for several months, and we're in the weeds, man. Like, we're, we're in it. We're in the fine details at times of how God's plan is unfolding. We're, we're talking about fine points of theology that are hard to understand, but my question is, do you see what it's all about? Do you see and appreciate the wisdom and mercy of God and how he works to save sinners? Friends, if you're not seeing that, you're missing it. You're missing what God wants you to see about himself and what he wants to involve you in now is his people is this great outpouring of his mercy and his grace on lost people and hear me it could be that in your 
in your great misunderstanding of the details that you're missing it. And it could just as easily be that in your great concern with the details that you're missing it. That you just can't see the large scope of what it's all about. But the text would have you see that in all the complexity of these texts, that there's, there's one overwhelming takeaway, the mercy of God on sinners. That's it. It's this great mercy and love of God that <laughs> causes Paul to break out in song at the end of this chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. That he would have mercy on all and that he would do it in this way. I love how this one song puts it. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. But here's the thing. It's right where we started. We can't see that unless we take our, so, our eyes off of ourselves and we look up. Not in, not around. We look, we look up. We see God for who he is. We see how he's worked in our lives from the perspective of, of his world with other people in mind. Only then can we respond in this way that Paul does. And one of the ways that we can do that is by by singing songs of praise to him. And so we're going to do just that very thing. If we could have the worship team come back up. There's one way to respond this morning that we see from Paul. It's to sing, it's to sing praises to God. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this exact song that we just read. And so pray with me if you would. And then we'll close by doing just that. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for your, your grace and your mercy, Lord. We're awestruck by it, Lord. Uh, God, it's so much greater than anything we could ever plan or come up with or ever conceive in our own minds, Lord. But we, we thank you that you've sovereignly, you've come down, you've given us your word, you've given us uh, ways to understand, you've given us your spirit that helps us see it, Lord, so that we can, that we can live lives with the right perspective. And we confess that we forget easily that we're prone to wander. Um, but God, we ask that you would just, uh, you would convince our hearts of it this morning. That you would help us to believe that you would walk with us and help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful expressions of the gospel as your people. We pray all these things in your name.